Good evening. This is Patrick Donahue. Appreciate you listening every week at this same time to Bible Crossfire. We'd love for you to call in and talk about your Bible question or your Bible topic. That's what this program is for. I'm going to start talking about something from the Bible while we're waiting on our first call, but I always let the callers have priority. The lines are wide open. If you'd like to call in, let's hear from you. We're going to talk about any Bible topic. Now, I don't know the answer to every question, of course. Hopefully, I'll just say I don't know. But one thing I'll guarantee, if I give you the answer, it's going to be a Bible answer. That's it. The answer to all religious questions, Bible questions, should be, the answer should be found in the Bible, obviously. It seems simple, doesn't it? But a lot of people give you answers not from the Bible. <laughs> I mean, the Catholic Church says, Mary was a virgin until she died, and they know they can't. you can't find that in the Bible. As a matter of fact, a couple of passages in the New Testament clearly says that Joseph knew Mary after Jesus was born and that Jesus had four brothers and a plural number of sisters. Just looking at the Bible, we know that Mary was not a virgin until she died. She was a virgin until Jesus was born. But the Catholic Church will say, no, she is a perpetual vir- virgin. They get that from tradition. So the Bible is not giving the answers to the questions for them. It was came comes from tradition. Most people, Catholics, will admit that purgatory is not found in the Bible. How do they know about purgatory? They say church, tradition. So we don't answer Bible questions that way. We don't talk about tradition. We talk about what God says in the Bible. Some traditions are good. If a tradition was started by God's word, it's going to be a good tradition. If a tradition is outside of God's word and or contradicts God's word, it's not a good tradition. We need to give up those traditions. If you have a Bible question or comment, the number to call is 877-655-6755. While we're waiting on our first call, I thought we'd talk about Bible exceptions. Now, usually the way an exception works, uh, Well, it works this way anywhere, but we're talking tonight about how it works in the Bible, in particular the New Testament. The way it works is a general rule is given, and then an exception is given to that general rule. Let me give you an everyday illustration. If you know about baseball, you know about this exception. A baseball runner that is caught off base when a fly ball is caught is out, except he tags up. You know that if a if you have a runner that on the hit of the baseball starts running, but it, that ball is caught in the air. Hold on a minute. I'm thinking about sneezing here. It's caught in the air. Then that runner better get back to the base before they get the ball to the base or he's out. But if he tags up, if he waits for the ball to be caught and then he runs, he's okay. But he's declared out unless or except he tags up. You see, the general rule is he declares out if he is caught off base when a fly ball is caught. That's the general rule. The exception to that is if he tags up. Let's look at some Bible examples of exceptions. For example, in John chapter 3, verse 39, we read this, And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing. Now, really, this is talking about the apostles here. But people try to use this to prove once saved, always saved. All the Father hath sent me, I lose nothing. 
Well, is that teaching once saved, always saved for every single Christian? Well, if it's on that topic, then actually it teaches just the opposite because we have an exception of that. John 17, 12 says the same thing, but gives an exception. Jesus says, while I was with them in the world, I have kept them in my name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, referring to Judas, of course. So one place, actually it's referring to the apostles, said Jesus lost none. Then he says in John 17, I lost none except Judas. So he's given the general rule. He didn't lose any of them. But there is one exception, Judas. Now, if that's talking about this issue on once saved, always saved in all Christians, then it wouldn't prove once saved, always saved. It would prove once saved, always saved is false because it tells, if that's the subject under consideration, then it would be telling about Judas who lost his salvation. Really, uh, this once saved, always saved doctrine or argument from John 8, 639 ignores the difference that even Calvinists recognize in God's predestined will and God's prescribed will. God's predestined will is unconditional and therefore unstoppable. That's mentioned in passages like Acts 2.23. God's prescribed will is what God's want, what God wants, but he doesn't necessarily force to happen. A good example of God's prescribed will is found in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. For this is the will of God that you should abstain from fornication. Now, he doesn't force us to abstain from fornication. It's not, that's, it's not his will in that sense. It's not his will in the same sense that Jesus would be born of a virgin. You know, to make that happen, he had to force it to happen. You don't just have a virgin, have a child without God performing a miracle. But when it says, this is the will of God that you should obtain from fornication, abstain from fornication, he's saying it's God's prescribed will. It's what you, he wants you to do, not what he's going to force you to do. You see that? That's what's going on in John 6, 39 anyway. It's not saying that Jesus didn't lose any by force, but that's God's will. This is the Father's will, his prescribed will that he should lose nothing. That's what God wanted to happen, but not God wasn't going to force it. He's not going to take away anybody's free will. He wants you to serve him, but he's not going to twist your arm. But if it were talking about the once saved, always saved doctrine, position, it would actually prove once saved, always saved is false because it gives an exception to the rule, Judas. So if it's talking about once saved, always saved, it would be saying that Judas, he's an exception to the rule, that Judas lost his salvation. And so it would prove once saved, always saved is false. Let's talk about another exception, Jesus' authority. Matthew 28, 19 reads this way. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. New King James Version. Now, if all we had was this one verse, we might think there's no exception to this all authority been given to Jesus. But we do have an exception. 1 Corinthians 15, 27 says, For he hath put, that's talking about God the Father, hath put all things under his feet, Jesus' feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. And so God gave Jesus all authority, Matthew 28, but 1 Corinthians 15, 27 says the father himself who gave him that authority is accepted. So even during the day times of the church period, when Jesus has been given all authority, 
the father remains head over the son. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, is said right, you know, in the New Testament, after Jesus has been given all authority, it says, the head of the woman is the man, the head of the man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. So even after Jesus has been given all authority, the head of Christ is God. God the Father is an exception to that. You see how exceptions work? I'm sure you agree with all that. You know, believing in Jesus is an exception. John 14, 6 gives it in the form of an exception. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In the, he's saying that in the sense of except by me. John 8, 24 from the American Standard Version says, I said therefore to you that ye shall die in your sins for except ye believe that I am he. Ye shall die in your sins. You see the exception? Except you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. So the general rule is implicit here. All will be lost because of sin. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. The way it's put in John 8.24 is you shall die in your sins. But the exception of that general rule is given by John 14.6 and John 8.24 is that if you believe in Jesus, you won't be lost. You're going to be lost because of your sins, except you believe in Jesus. You see, the general rule will be lost because of our sins. The wages of sin is death. There's an exception. Those that trust and obey Jesus become an exception to the rule that you'll be lost because of your sins. Because if you take advantage of the death of Christ, you won't be lost because of your sins. If you have a Bible question or comment, please call us at 877-655-6755. You know, repenting of sin is the same way. An exception is given. Luke 13, 3, Jesus said, I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. So the general rule is here, you're going to perish. Why? Because of her sin, Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. All will perish because of sin. That's the general rule in Luke 13, 3. But in that verse, he gives an exception. Except you repent. You're going to be lost except or unless you repent. That's the exception to the general rule. Aren't we glad that exception is there? If we repent, we won't perish. But what it means is you got to repent in order to avoid perishing. The only way you could avoid perishing because of your sins is if you repent of your sins. If you have a Bible question or comment, give us a call, 877-655-6755. We got another exception in John chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. The general rule here is implicit again. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6, 23. You're not going to be able to enter into the kingdom of God as a general rule because of your sin. There is an exception. If you're born of water and of the Spirit, then you're an exception to the rule that you'll be lost because of your sin. There's two strong reasons here to conclude that born of water refers to water baptism. First of all, water baptism is the only thing of spiritual significance in the New Testament that involves water. So what else could he be talking about when he says, except a man be born of water? That's the only thing of spiritual significance that involves water. And whatever this born of water is, you got to do it to enter the kingdom of God. And Romans 3 and 4, Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4 and verse 6 teaches the new birth is completed at baptism. Let me read that. 
Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, so we're talking about baptism, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. What's that verse saying? It's saying that when you're baptized, that's when you crucify your old man. It's when you, of course, Peter told believers in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. So when you get baptized, you get the remission of all your sins, but it won't do you any good unless you repent first. And that's what he's talking about here. You repent before you're baptized. So when you're baptized, you start walking in newness of life. You put away that old man. You make a commitment to quit serving sin and start serving Christ. And after you're baptized, God expects you to follow through on that commitment. You see how the born again process occurs? The walking in newness of life and quit serving the old man happens when you become a Christian, when you repent and are baptized. So John 3, 5 is talking about water baptism. Forgiveness and the new walk or new person begins at baptism. John from New York, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you for serving our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and uh, especially at this hour. We're in New York, and it's 916. I don't know where you guys are, but uh, praise God. I just want to um, make a comment about uh, the exception rules that you're uh, sharing. Uh, and with all due respect, I believe that eternal security is taught by the Bible. I think you build a doctrine on the general principles that are dominantly uh, and predominantly uh, consistent throughout the Bible, and the exception is Judas because he was the son of perdition. I think you can also argue that Judas was not saved. He was chosen. Uh, the Holy Spirit had not been uh, disseminated yet, so I don't believe Judas was ever saved, to be honest with you. I don't know if you can prove that to me if he was the son of perdition. So I do think that you know, uh, our Lord and Savior is the author and finisher of our faith. I do believe that we're sealed at the time of redemption. And um, certainly, my brother, I would not want to uh, be contentious or, you know, uh, cause division because we're brothers in Christ. But I do believe the Bible teaches eternal security because I, I just want to rest on this. If if we are not to be anxious, you know, the Bible, that's a command. It's in the, it's in the command tense that to be anxious for nothing. And if somehow a Christian feels that they they have some kind of part or role in their salvation, then I think we're moving into a work salvation instead of grace through faith. And I don't like the term hypergrace either because that makes it sound like a buzzword. But I do believe that when Paul says, you know, shall we continue in sin any longer so that grace may abound. He says, God forbid. So true believers, true repentant believers make repentance uh, a general practice of their walk, not because they feel that they have to know it to be saved, but because of the fact that he's done so much for us and we no longer want to live in sin and we no longer uh, you know, want to be disobedient to our Lord and Savior. But I think if we're constantly looking over our shoulders you know, um, you know, am I saved? Am I not saved? I think we're on like troublesome ground. You know, I just feel as if the, the dominant scriptures there make it pretty clear that, um, you know, we have a God who seals us until the day of, of redemption. 
and the exception that you're pointing out. I don't know if you build a doctrine on an exception. You build a doctrine based on consistent, predominant principles that the Bible teaches. John, thanks for your call. So we can, you know, as far as being dominant, I think there's probably at least 100 verses in the Bible that prove conclusively that once saved, always saved is false. And there's not one that indicates the other way. So it's not only dominant, it's unanimous. For example, let's look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. What does that teach? If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation 3, verse 5. This is, this is not hard. It's not rocket science. Jesus says, he that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. Well, the implication is, is that if you don't overcome temptation, he will blot your name out. Now, it has to be talking about a Christian or your name wouldn't be in the book of life to start with. But the implication is, if you don't overcome temptation, your name will be blotted out. Obviously, as I said, it's not rocket science. It's conclusively, very simply, proving conclusively that one's name can be in the book of life and then go out of the book of life. Now, all this human reasoning about, well, then that would mean that you're anxious and things like that. That's all human reasoning. The Bible teaches once saved, always saved is false. And then it commands you not to be careful. I mean, not to be anxious. So that's what we have to do. We have to do that. That doesn't prove that once saved, always saved is true. That just proves that we don't need to be anxious. Now, as far as every person who's truly a Christian is going to continue to be faithful. That I don't, I'm not using the same words as the caller did, but that's what he was saying. We can easily prove that false. Just turn to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 12. Now, I'm not asking you to take my word for it. I'm going to read it to you right out of the Bible, and it's going to be simple, and it's going to be conclusive. That a person who truly became a Christian can quit serving the Lord. Here's Hebrews 3.1. It says, wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Now, this is, so at this point in the letter, he's writing to brethren, Christians. We know they're Christians because he says they're holy brethren. Holy, in the Greek, same word as sanctified. They've been sanctified by the blood, so they're holy. It says they're partakers of the heavenly calling. And I know our caller will agree that only a Christian has partaken of the heavenly calling. This has got to be, these brethren have to be Christians. Now notice verse 12. Take ye brethren, he's talking to these same Christians, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now I have this friend here that he makes this point. You don't see any billboard signs in Huntsville, Alabama that say beware of sharks. Why? Because we're not close, close to the ocean. People don't bother to warn people about sharks here because it's impossible to encounter a shark here. So with by that same reasoning, God would not warn these Christians, these believers, against developing an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God if that were not possible. This is not just talking. This is conclusive proof that a Christian, a born-again person, can a believer, a true believer, a sincere believer, can develop an evil heart of unbelief and depart from the living God. It's conclusive proof. That means that means that's for sure what it teaches, and you're not going to find another verse in the Bible that contradicts that. It's not like we, we check out all the verses in the Bible and we kind of line them up and we can't really tell what they say, but maybe 10 of them seem to be teaching this and only nine of them seem to be teaching the other. Therefore, it's 10 to 9 and the 10 went out. No. We look at all 19 and we look at what they're saying. 
and they're all going to be consistent. They're not going to contradict each other. We don't talk about what they seem to teach. We find out what they really teach. And we find out what they really teach. All 19 are going to agree on that. Let's look at another verse. If you're in Hebrews, look at James 5, 19 and 20. It's also conclusive on this question of once saved, always saved. James 5, 19 and 20, again, talking to brethren. The New King James says, if any of you do wonder from the truth. So I like to illustrate that here. You have a small child. We watch a child because we don't want him wandering from the house. He may get hurt himself. Here's a brother in Christ. He wanders from the truth. That means he was in the truth. He left the truth. It says, brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, if one convert him, let him know that he which converteth a sinner from the air of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. So what's this verse saying? It says, if one of you Christians wanders from the truth, the other Christians who are still in the truth are supposed to try to convert him back. Right? And if we do convert him back, we save his soul from death. Now, that implies that if he refuses to be converted back, his soul will die. Not physical death. His soul will die. He'll be lost. Again, this conclusively proves that if a brother errs from the truth and he's not converted back, he will die spiritually. His sins will not be covered. I mean, that's very clear. It's conclusive, too. It's not like, well, you know, we can't be anxious. And if once saved, always saved is not true, we'll be anxious. But that's a false conclusion. No, we believe once saved, always saved is not true. Because God said it, and we trust what he says, and we love him enough to believe what he says. And then when he tells us not to be anxious, we don't be anxious. Both of those passages are true. We don't try to pit one against the other and say we can ignore all these passages that prove once saved, always saved is false. Because we have a verse that commands us to be anxious. And if once saved, always saved is false, well, we can't help but being anxious. Well, that's just human reasoning. Instead, every verse is true. Let's go to another passage that's crystal clear on this issue. Galatians chapter 5 verse 4 is also very clear. You know, the Baptist will say, well, it's impossible for a child of God to fall from grace. But Paul says in Galatians 5 4, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. So what the Baptists say is impossible to happen, Paul said did happen. People in that time who were trying to be justified by the Old Testament law, these were Jews who were converted to Christ. If you look at Acts 15, saying these Gentiles who were converted had to be circumcised. And when Paul says, well, when you do that, you're trying to be justified by the Old Testament law, you are falling from grace. Well, so not only is it possible to fall from grace, we have an example of some people here in Galatians 5, 4 that did. If we find some people that did, that proves it's possible. There's no other way around that. Now, I like to say, have you, have you ever climbed a tree? Have you ever fallen from a tree? You can't fall from a tree unless you're in the tree. These people had fallen from grace, which means they were in grace. They were Christians. They fell from grace. They're no longer Christians. Again, that's conclusive. That's just not talking about it. That's actually giving verses that prove conclusively what we're talking about. When I say prove conclusively, that means it's for sure teaching that so that you're not going to find another verse that contradicts that, of course. So we've talked about exceptions in the Bible, and we have a lot more. We were talking about being born of water and how that's an exception. Forgiveness of sins. I guess we don't really have time to get into this one, forgiveness of sins. But there are a number of exceptions that we find in the New Testament, and we'll try to get back to those in a future program. We appreciate you listening tonight. We appreciate that good call. We uh, 
we're glad to, as a matter of fact, if somebody really believes that once saved, always saved is true. If they're confident that it's true, then, then I offer to do what we read about Jesus and Paul doing, public, publicly discussing that issue. I would be uh, eager to come to where you guys are and have a public debate. If you got a church willing to host it, we could debate something like once saved, always saved. A friendly public debate. No interruptions are allowed. Both sides are presented so the audience can fairly hear both sides. I really believe I can prove it easily from the Bible. And since I believe that, I'm willing to debate it. But you won't find any of these preachers who teach once saved, always saved, be willing to debate it because deep down, they know it can't be defended. They know it can't be defended. If you would like a free one-hour phone Bible study, sometime at your convenience, I'd love to do that with you. Call or text me at 256 682 9753. 